0: If you're like me, a lover of the environment, then for sure the Cousteau family has made a significant difference to your perception of our world. My guest today is a third generation member of this amazing family, the magnificent Alexandra Cousteau. Alexandra continues the work of her world-renowned grandfather, Jacques-Yves Cousteau, and her father, Philippe Cousteau Sr., She's a National Geographic Emerging Explorer filmmaker, a globally recognized advocate on water issues. She's a masterful storyteller dedicated to advocating the importance of conservation and sustainable management of the water resources in order to preserve a healthy planet. Alexandra is the co-founder of Oceans 2050, a global initiative with the aim to restore abundance in the oceans in one generation. She's also a senior advisor to Oceana and is deeply involved in its campaigns to curb overfishing. Alexandra, I'm so, so grateful that you joined me today. Hello. Hi. Believe it or not, one of the things I wanted to ask you today is, so I'm the typical mainstream doer. I've lived my life in the fast-paced tech environment, worked at IBM, Microsoft, Google. I've always lived in cities, whether in a house in the city or in an apartment building closest to the center of the city. And and of course, you know, I don't know if you know my story, but around six years ago, I lost my wonderful son and I started to really look at life differently. And part of that is recently I've been in that stage where I was saying to myself, I have spent, I think, enough of my life in the main fast paced stream. And maybe it's about time that I seriously invest in my connection to nature in my spirituality in my ascendance as, a, as to get to know me a little more. I think I know me reasonably well, but I think there is work to do. And I wanted to ask you actually, how do you do that? Because sometimes you go on expeditions and you're somewhere for four or five months and you're really, really in nature, and probably not even accessible most of the time, right? If you're in the middle of the ocean, yeah, I mean, there could be connectivity, but not full connectivity. And then you come back to the real world, not the real world, I think there is the real world, but the real world we're used to, and then you acclimate to that, and then you go again. Is that actually doable? Is that something you think someone like me who's never done it can do, be really in nature?
1: Oh, absolutely. My husband's a city boy. He's uh, born and bred in Berlin, spent some time as a child in LA, so is a bit of a global citizen now and speaks English like an American and has traveled a lot in his life. But he was very much a kid who grew up in Berlin back when it was still West Berlin before the wall came down. And there were the things that they did in the city, but he didn't have a huge amount of access to nature. And um, I'm happy to say that uh, I've been able to fill in some of the holes in his upbringing. When we first met, I took him to learn how to scuba dive in Belize. I took him to catch frogs uh, in the (laughs) middle of the night in a wetland outside of D.C. in Maryland. And I've been able to introduce him to some of the other childhood memories that I had that meant so much to me. And it was really fun because every time we did something like that, he'd be like an eight-year-old kid.
0: Yeah. I miss that so much.
1: Yes. And even even once he joined us in Alabama on expedition in 2010, and two of my camera guys were going out at 10 o'clock at night to film crocodiles in the river, or alligators rather. And they invited him to go along. And so he went out filming alligators and poisonous snakes in a Alabama swamp in the middle of the night, uh, which was something he never thought he would do.
0: (laughs) It's definitely something I wouldn't think I would do either. I mean, it's a life-changing experience almost, right? It is.
1: It's transformational. And I think I grew up on expedition. I went on my first expedition when I was six months old. And Grew up with the camaraderie of the crew and traveling a lot and always being exposed to new faces and new places and new sounds and smells and ideas and cultures and food. And that to me feels like home. When I'm with a small group of people and we're on a mission and we're telling a story, it's always been my happy place, either as a child or as an adult. But a lot of the work that I do is also about trying to protect and restore what we're losing oh yeah and when i did work in the field i lived in central america for a couple of years and we would constantly be taking one step forward and two steps back we'd work for two years to get an anti-shark thinning legislation passed in a central american country and then a new president would come in and he would get rid of that legislation that we had worked so hard to get passed, and suddenly people would be finning sharks again. And I realized that that kind of field work is not what I'm cut out for. It's too painful. It's really painful. So I'm much better off supporting those people who are heroes to me for the difficulty of the work that they do just the emotional difficulty of the work that they do. Like you have to be a really special kind of person to work so hard to build something and half the time watch it get torn apart and just jump right in and rebuild it again. So that I support them wholeheartedly and admire them so much for their resilience. And I find my place in storytelling and advocacy with heads of states or CEOs or university students or local communities, really the one-on-one conversations about specific policies or legislation or issues that we want to solve. And I've been doing that for about a decade with Oceana which is the largest NGO dedicated exclusively to oceans. And I've done it on my own as well for my own projects. And I think that's where I can see real progress and have a real role to play that isn't as painful as it can be in the field. And of course, living in nature is restorative to me. Here in the countryside, we have frogs and birds and grasshoppers and insects that are singing singing, 24 hours a day. I spend my day with them. I spend my nights with them. I hear them all the time. And that background noise of abundant nature that's healthy and diverse and thriving, it's such a soothing feeling when you're dealing with so much loss.
0: I feel your pain, by the way. I go through that myself because I'm also trying to fight a big fight where I think we're constantly deluded by the way we raise our children, the way we educate them and the idea that we educate them for success, which is sadly destroying our planet, but making them very unhappy and that we actually don't really ever teach our children to grow up to appreciate nature. We don't teach them to grow up to be happy, to know the techniques of happiness. We don't teach them to love themselves, actually as a matter of fact, we teach them to almost compete with themselves. And it's sad because you can see that your efforts, regardless of how hard you can try, will either sometimes be reversed or will just not reach everyone, really. And I think the question then becomes, what gets you to continue to do it? I mean, your effort around Ocean's 2050 is quite remarkable. And it's quite ambitious when you think about it. You know, you're saying in one generation, that's a massive ambition. What gets you out of bed to do it? That's difficult.
1: Well. A lot of things changed for me when my daughter was born. And and I had been talking a lot about conservation and sustainability, which were ideas that my father helped to articulate for the first time in the 1960s around Mm -hmm. the ocean. And over time I realized that those are ideas that served the last generation well. But we are in a situation now with climate change and the loss of biodiversity and pollution that requires us to be more ambitious than simply sustaining what's left. And I was at a fisheries symposium a number of years ago when it all really fell into place in my mind. And I was talking with the fisheries scientist about the North Atlantic cod populations, which are fascinating fish. And in fact, there's a book that's been written about them because they play such a huge role in the history of the United States and Canada, and even exploration and Europe. They're an amazing species. And they collapsed due to overfishing in the 1970s, which was a huge cultural shock for everybody in the Northeast Corridor. And they are still at 6% of their historic numbers.
0: 6%? Oh my
1: God. 6 and that's considered a sustainable fishery because we could maintain that.
0: That's ridiculous.
1: That's my, that was my thought exactly. And that's when I realized that the words that we use do not measure up to the ambition that we should have to not just maintain what's left. And in the case of the ocean, it's 50% of the ocean's wealth of life and diversity. 50% of the whales and the fish that roamed the seas when my grandfather first started exploring them 70 years ago are gone. Most of it gone in my lifetime. And so I started thinking about conservation and sustainability and are these really words that reflect the ambition and the boldness and the courage that we need to have in this moment. And realize that from my perspective, what it really needs to be about. The conversations that we should be shaping and having is about restoring the lost abundance. And I was talking with Carlos Duarte, who's our chief scientific advisor and an extraordinary scientist, about two years ago when I was really thinking, you know, I don't want to just work to conserve and sustain The 50% of the oceans that's left. I want to work to restore the abundance that my father and my grandfather knew and that I have watched disappear in my lifetime. And by 2050, instead of more plastic than fish, I want to have an abundance of life that my children and all children can take as their legacy. And I sort of thought, well, I don't even know if that's possible. I don't know if science would even support that idea. And I reached out to Carlos. He said, well, actually, Alessandro, I'm writing a paper about that, which oh, wow. is usually what he's how he answers all my questions. It's amazing, <laughs> um, and he recently published that paper in Nature a couple months ago, where he and about ten other world-class marine biologists talk about the fact that yes, we can rebuild marine biodiversity by 2050 if we do certain things, and that economically. We would get about $10 back for every dollar invested. So it's oh, wow. not only that scientifically this is possible, but economically it's beneficial. Now we just need to make it politically expedient. Because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, now that we have the scientific proof and the economic analysis to support that we could rebuild abundant oceans by 2050, it is a mandate for everybody to raise their eyesight to a more ambitious goal, rather than just sustaining, we need to rebuild. And we know how, and we know we can do it if we do certain things in the next decade. And so that's been what all of our work has been about, is identifying what are those catalysts that can get us there, which would allow us to leapfrog into an abundant future. And there are some things like seaweed aquaculture that are those tools that can help us get there and, and that can have a really big impact on carbon absorption oh, in the oceans and climate change mitigation and jobs and coastal protections and fisheries increases and deacidification and reoxygenation of seawater and on and on and on. It's sort of a miracle thing. So we've been involved in that and looking at other technologies that can be catalytic and other ideas and organizations that are challenging the status quo of how we approach ocean conservation. What's crazy to me is that I have heard people say, well, things aren't looking good. We need to do more of the same thing. And I'm like, the same thing hasn't been working, so why don't we try something new?
0: (laughs) Unbelievable. First of all, what you just said inspires me at so many levels. The first of which, by the way, is the idea of preservation is a lie because like Michelangelo would say, it's bad enough to set a low target and achieve it. You might as well set a high target and miss it a little bit, right? I think the problem with our world is that we are setting a low target and missing it. So we're saying 6% is enough and we'll preserve it. But the reality is that we're not very good at keeping our words and that this 6%, eventually if we make a mistake and we'll go to 4 and then we'll say we'll preserve that, right? And I think that's really, really a big issue. I think the other side of this is when you say it's doable, that's actually really inspiring. It's quite important for people to know that it's doable. So Absolutely. What do you mean, Dober? So seaweed seems very logical to me. I worked in Google X on a project that was attempting to take CO2 out of the seawater and actually turn it into fuel, which was quite ambitious. But what I learned at the time is that most of the CO2 that we put in the environment actually ends up in the oceans. And I don't remember the exact figure, but something like maybe 80% or something like that. And so seaweed sounds like a very logical thing to do for the whole world, not just for the oceans. Now, the question is, those kinds of projects, what scale are we talking about? Is this a, a billion dollars project? Is it a $10 billion project? Or is it what, you know, what do we need to do to make that happen?
1: Well, Carlos goes into detail it in his report. But the short answer is we need several billion dollars a year to be able to rebuild ocean abundance. But we spend that money on so many things. I mean, I was
0: just going to say it's
1: it. crazy what we spend that kind of money on.
0: Yeah. Drones and, uh, and weapons and
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the money is there. All of the money that we need to restore ocean abundance is there. Much of it is already in the system of oceans or in the system of environment or climate change. We just need to allocate it differently. And I think that there's great opportunity to do so. What I've noticed is that we are reaching a moment where I think people are finally ready to embrace change we've been postponing the change required for so long whether it's our own personal habits or how we pay out subsidies or whatever it is like our trade agreements are there's so much change that needs to be done to get out the factors that are baked into our system that lead to scarcity and lead to degradation and lead to poverty and unhappiness and all these other things but now whoever i'm talking to Even fishermen are realizing that they're pulling out more plastic than ever from their nets. Young people are deeply anxious about the future. There's mental health issues and the field of eco psychology, which is emerging. Young women are questioning whether or not they want to have children. We have a movement for plastic, which is stronger than anything I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, the last time something like this happened was when we were saving the whales in the 1970s and there was a global push to stop whale hunting, which was largely successful. But since then, it's sort of been all quiet on the ocean front. And now we have this outcry against plastic simply because people are seeing it on the beach and they're seeing it in the environment and they're realizing that that's not the world they want to live in. And more importantly, they don't want to participate in the problem. They want to help solve the problem, and so there's enormous momentum that's building right now for the oceans and climate change and I think that it's this is a turning point, hopefully when we realize that the old ways are not taking us where we want to go, and we need to do things differently and, and I think the youth are demanding that
0: Clearly, and I
1: think they should they yeah. should demand that yeah. so it's exhilarating in a way because change is what we need well, change is what we're going to get one way or another. but crafting the change so that we get the outcome we want is really important. And I think we're finally starting to get ready to do that.
0: So it's really inspiring that you say it in such a positive way, because sometimes like you, I just feel the pain. I go like, this is too big to fix. But at the same time, I think if we just take the right steps, some parts of abundance will help us to accelerate that change in the right way. I want to ask you a very important question for me, But before I do that, I always make an announcement to tell people that I'm running this podcast with one reason only, to get us to connect with ourselves, to find the important stuff and to make a billion people happy. And so I ask people to please spread the word. I think uh, if you're here enjoying Alexandra's views on life, then I think others deserve that too. So please let them know. Alexandra, so I have been struggling with the question of where should I live? Do you believe we humans are made to live in nature? Do you believe the illusion of me living in a big city is something that I was conditioned to believe? You growing up, going to an expedition when you're six months old, may have been conditioned differently.
1: Well, speaking for myself, I need to be in nature. Even in a city, I need to be near a park. I need to hear the birds. When I'm not, I feel a lot of stress and I miss it and that connection is really important to me. And I watched my children thriving in nature, and I know it's deeply important for them as well, their happiness and their well-being. And, you know, I read the book Nature Deficit Disorder, (laughs) and it's a great book. I definitely feel nature deficit disorder when I'm not near it. And I think there's been a lot of really interesting studies and books that have come out recently about how we all need some... Nature in our lives. A
0: dose of nature. Yeah. Yeah.
1: A dose of it. And that there's a lot of talk in urban planning about how do we get nature back to people and people back to nature so that they can thrive and they can feel both the emotional but also the health benefits of being near trees. And it was an interesting story that I heard about a community in Colorado and they were living in this heavily wooded small community and they were all very outdoorsy. And I believe it was the emerald boar beetle came and infested the trees around their community and the trees died. So suddenly they were feeling like they were in this post-apocalyptic environment. And they noticed that heart problems went up, depression went up. So I think it's important for all of us. And I know that there's so much in the city to love. I mean, I've lived in Barcelona and Paris and D.C. and L.A., and I've lived in a lot of cities. And there's obviously so exciting, and there's people in restaurants and theater and shopping and all these things to, to do and see and feel and experience. But bringing more nature into the city can only be a good thing, or getting out of the city into nature so that we remember what abundance feels like, and we remember... With the wind in the trees and the sound of rivers and the chirping of the frogs and the chirping of the birds and the rustling of the leaves, what it feels like to be there. Because I think that is that was our connection before we built our first cities. Absolutely. That's where we come from and that's our home. And I think part of all of us still needs to come home to roost from time to time.
0: I'll take that from you as my target. I'll uh, plan for that. I'll, take, <laughs> I'll actually take it very seriously. I was waiting for our conversation to ask you. And of course, I was sort of waiting because I knew you would say that. And I think it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite interesting how I miss it. I really do. And, you know, because COVID-19 allowed me to slow down a little bit and be out there in nature a little more often, walk in parks and so on, I sort of realized how important this is for me. Do you think that COVID-19 was good for our environment? Did we get good out of this?
1: You know, I think that remains to be seen. And obviously, I wish this had never happened. The devastation that it's wrought for people and for communities and the economy and all of that is a horrible thing. Perhaps if there is a a silver lining somewhere, it's that I've heard many people talk about the fundamental shift that has happened within themselves about how they see their own life what they want to go back to and what they don't want to go back to. They realize that having more peace and quiet in their life has become a requirement. They remember what it's like to spend time with their families. A lot of CEOs that I've spoken to realize that so much of the travel that they were making their employees do was actually unnecessary. Totally. And that Zoom is a perfect way to communicate for most things, maybe not everything, but most things. And you can incorporate those carbon savings into your annual report and your report to your shareholders. And so I think that there are a lot of realizations that people have made, at least in my circle, about things that they want to do differently. And all of those things are aligned with a different lifestyle, a lower carbon lifestyle, a lifestyle with more family time and less commuting and less travel because they remembered. Yeah all of the things that they had sort of slipped away from them. And the other thing that was interesting to me was that about 10 years ago, when we had the big recession, the sustainability programs were really the first things that companies cut, you know, a century of a strong economy. Now, many CEOs are saying that that is the last thing that they will cut as they they re-examine their budgets because they realize that, it's good for their company, it's good for the communities that they serve, and most importantly, it's building a better future for all of us. And I think that that is a critical shift. And so those are the kinds of things that when I hear them as an outcome of COVID, I think maybe something good can come out of this.
0: I believe something good comes out of everything. I will add to all that you said, that as a, a happiness worker, if you want, I will absolutely say that those things definitely impact positively on our happiness, being out in nature, being able to travel less, being able to spend more family time, more time with people that you love. And in all honesty, I will tell you openly, our conversation couldn't be better than what we're having now, because believe it or not, it's just you and me and Zoom And I find that to be, of course, the human element is sometimes important, but for a deep intellectual conversation, sometimes you need that sort of environment where you can be one-to-one, really, really one-to-one. So before we close, tell me about happiness, about your happiness.
1: So I learned what I think is a key to real happiness a number of years ago when I was eight months pregnant with my son, who's now four years old. And I was in Vermont filming a story with a dairy farmer who had recently taken his whole family operation organic because he didn't want to contribute to the blue-green algae problems plaguing Lake Champlain. And so he took me around his farm and there was this little calf that was following me all day and I was in heaven and um, (laughs) talked to me about all of the changes he'd made and, and all the benefits that he had procured for his operation by making these changes. At the end of this, I asked him, I said, so how do all of these changes make you feel? And he said, you know, Alexandra, I feel amazing because for the first time in my life, I've been able to align my beliefs and my actions. And I feel like I'm leaving a better world for my children. And I thought that was really profound and a beautiful thing to say. And I went back home and I had my son and, you know, life gets crazy after when you have a baby. And so I didn't really think about what he said again so much. But then a few months later, I was hosting a documentary for National Geographic about organic cotton. And one of the locations we went to was in India in Madhya Pradesh, which is a very traditional part of the country. There's not a lot of tourism. They're mostly cotton farmers. I was in Madhya Pradesh talking with a cotton farmer who had taken his whole operation organic to escape the negative consequences of the use of pesticides. And he showed me his farm and his crops and talked to me about how his family was healthier, his land was healthier. We made pesticides out of hot chili peppers and garlic and ginger together and and went and sprayed it on his fields. And at the end of the day, I asked him, I said, so how does all this make you feel, all these changes that you made? And he said to me through the translator, but basically what he said was, I feel wonderful because for the first time in my life, I'm able to align my values with my actions And I feel like I'm leaving a better world for my children. Exactly. And there's nothing that could have been these two men, other than both having a connection to the land through farming, they had nothing else in common. And that's when, as I thought about it, I realized, I think that being able to align our values with our actions is one of the most unmet human needs in the world. Nothing about the way we've set up our society makes that easy. And I think that if we are able to think about anything while we're in lockdown, perhaps thinking about how we can better align the things that we deeply believe with the choices that we make in our everyday life, to be able to have that alignment. And um, to me, that's when I'm happiest, is when I'm able to find that alignment and make choices in my life that reflect my beliefs. And sometimes it's as simple as taking my reusable shopping bags to the grocery store. And whatever it is, big or small, I find peace in those decisions. And that gives me a lot of happiness.
0: I couldn't ask for a better message today. That is deeply personal to me, what you just said. I am at a point in my life, as I said, where I'm really trying to align, really trying to not just do the work, but be the person that I believe I am. And I think that's an incredible message. I think it's an incredible message to everyone listening.
1: Well, you know, I um, my father, who died when I was three and a half, was an extraordinary role model. Even if I don't remember much of him in life, I've had the example of his life throughout my own. And he was extraordinary. And what he left behind was a real guide. And also I have the guide of my children who guide me every day.
0: Do you dream for them to have a life like yours, your third generation? Do you want them to be fourth generation?
1: I want them to be happy. Great. And I want to do everything that I can to ensure that they grow up into people that can find happiness. So I'm not that focused on academics. I'm looking for schools like green school that focus on the human and the emotional iq and not just the academic iq and i I saw how at green school my children were thriving in all of these ways they shined and i'd never seen that before so with being in lockdown and they've been home we've really focused on just finding things that they're passionate about that they want to dive into and learn as much as my daughter's studying ancient greece right now and ancient Egypt. And she's really enjoying that and just devouring that. And my son is interested in letters and they're both interested in nature and building and art and creativity and Legos. So we've just been taking it easy. And I've tried not to be stressed out about the academics. They're both perfectly capable of catching up with that once they go back to school, but to keep the learning alive.
0: I've raised my kids that way. And I will tell you, it's the best decision I've ever made my son was my mentor my daughter is my really my sunshine and they're my teachers and they're wise and basically it was all about the decision of I want them to be happy and the only way for them to be truly happy is to be themselves and it mm-hmm. really made all the difference in the world even today I my daughter is super artistic incredibly talented and she's 25 now, but she every now and then will go into, maybe I should study economics and maybe I should work in a bank. And I'm like, baby, seriously, we have enough bankers. Yeah, <laughs> oh so goodness.
1: <laughs> we definitely have enough of them.
0: <laughs> and the truth is she shines when she's in front of her canvas and expressing herself. And it's just something that we have to empower them. To focus on and the ages they are now four and eight. This is where you build that operating system if you want that your happiness matters. You need to be successful, but the definition of success is not what the world tells us. If you put your 10,000 hours Absolutely. In, in something you're passionate about, you're gonna be amazing at it, and that's good enough.
1: And you know, who knows what the world will be like in 10 years, 20 years, 30 yeah. years. The educational systems that we have were built for the industrial revolution. Correct. And I think that at least the right decision for my family is to give them an environment in which they can feel inspired and passionate about things and confident and happy and they can follow their interests and then we'll see. We'll see how that goes.
0: (laughs) I pray they'll always be happy, healthy, loving and loved. As I always say, I think these are the four things that matter. And what can I say? I adore you. I adore your family. I adore everything you've brought to our world. And I will tell you any day that you wake up feeling the pain or feeling tired, please wake up and keep doing what you're doing because you're a blessing to all of us. I really say that from deep inside my heart. You're an amazing, amazing person. Thank you so much for what you taught us today.
1: Well, thank you, Mo. And thanks for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate the chance to share these ideas with people.
0: And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or 1 Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.